Good morning, Barberton campus. Uh, it is great to be with you. If I haven't met you, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors from the Norton campus, and uh, I have enjoyed kind of the privilege and the opportunity uh, from the inception of the Barberton campus to see and observe that. And I'm so thankful for what God is doing in and through you, and I'm excited to be with you this morning as we continue our how counterintuitive some of the statements are that Jesus made. Take, for example, when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? Our natural inclination is retribution, but he offers an alternative path in order to experience joy and satisfaction. Right? When we think of what Jesus has said, we would also think about uh, him saying, whoever wants to save their life must first lose it. And how counterintuitive the idea of submitting to God's will and plan and desire is where we find true joy and peace and satisfaction. Within this series, we see words of Jesus that maybe we often don't think about because they're not found in the Gospels. It's Paul quoting him, found in Acts, and this is what Jesus says. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I think of uh, how uh, counterintuitive that may be to my kids as they await Christmas, right? We're blessed with four of us. All of us find so much joy and satisfaction in receiving, but the thankfulness that we can experience in the opportunity to extend that, to be able to give towards others. I want to tell you about a, a family that lived out that reality. They were born in uh, the 1800s, George Mueller and his wife, Mary. They moved to Bristol, England in 1835. Uh, they lived a really simple life, pretty frugal people, but they saw a need in their community around them. They saw that there were many orphan children who were living on the streets in dire, difficult conditions. And so they took their rented apartment and turned it into an orphanage. They were able to house 30 young women. Can you imagine what that would have been like, right? Uh, to have your apartment turn into an orphanage. Well, this ministry continued to grow. They turned into one apartment to two to three to four. At one point, early in this ministry, they had... 300 kids in service. But what was fascinating was that they didn't have much money. And they trusted God for his provision for this ministry. It was said one morning that the director at the time came to George and said, we have absolutely no money and no food in the cupboard. What should we do? He said, get the kids dressed, ready to go to school, and send them to the dining room. And so they went in the dining room, they sat down at their empty uh, table setting with the plate and the empty cup, and they began to pray. After they prayed, there was a knock at the door. It was a local baker who couldn't sleep the night previous because he felt the urge to cook biscuits for the 300 children. Shortly after that knock, there was a milkman. His cart had broken out right 
down right outside the orphanage, and the milk would spoil before he would be able to fix the cart. And so we see this miraculous provision trusted based on God's faithfulness and his goodness. I was telling uh, the story this week to my kids, and my son Cooper's like, did God cause that wheel to break down? I'm like, I'm not sure. What we know is that God will provide. It said that uh, around 10,000 orphans were cared by the Mueller family. At one point, when they ran into obstacles, they prayed and continued to ask God provide. They never once requested funds. Very late in their ministry, they kind of published a pamphlet once a year with some needs. George recorded a prayer journal. There were 50,000 prayers that had been answered, specific prayers by God. 30,000 of those were answered within the day, many of which were answered within the hour. Isn't this so fascinating when you think of the life? And you think of maybe the joy and the thankfulness, the contentment that they would experience, the gratitude that they would have experienced in their life. Their life would have been anything but easy, right, to care for that many kids. But what they knew was that their faith and finances were interlinked. Their belief instructed their behavior. They knew that it was more blessed to give than to receive. They say over the course of his life, the worth that he accrued kind of through him that he gave to this ministry was about a half billion dollars in today's money. Isn't that just so fascinating with the trust and provision of God? We're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians 8 today. And what Paul does is he's writing to the people in Corinth, and he's telling them about the example of others. He's pointing to them in order to give instruction about how they should view money, how they should think through their finances. Now, within this passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 8, you can grab a Bible device. It will be on the screen. There's three groups of people that are mentioned. First, when you see the word you, it's mentioning those in Corinth. Corinth is uh, probably not familiar to many of us because uh, it is very small. But in those days, it would have been the equivalent of a city like New York or Los Angeles. It was one of the top cities along with Athens, which was only about 30 or 40 miles away. So it was in southern Greece. And it was a very wealthy city. They had commerce that had to come through there. They had an isthmus between the two lands. And it was the only way that boats could uh, transfer goods. And so this city uh, had become very well known. They had the second largest games right behind the Olympics. It was called the Isthmus Games. And so Paul is writing to them. He had visited. He had helped plan a church there. And uh, they wanted to be a part of an offering. A year prior, they were on Paul's second missionary journey. They were raising money for the struggling church in Jerusalem. They had hit a period of significant trial, of difficulty. And so those churches that had been blessed uh, from the Jerusalem church were kind of returning the favor. And so Paul mentions 
others that they would have been familiar with, the Macedonian churches. Those were churches to the north, northern Greece. They were churches like Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. And what he was doing was telling about these churches that were in very different financial circumstances and how they've responded in rich generosity. And he's saying, look at their example. Now, when Paul is mentioning, I find it very fascinating, uh, the specifics that he mentions who is with them. So he sends Titus to take this offering. Two other brothers are mentioned that they don't get their name mentioned. They think they're delegates from Corinth and the Macedonian churches. But we see the careful integrity that is handled within this offering, right? And so Paul is giving them instructions and encouragement to continue this grace of giving. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you, the church in Corinth, to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, without compulsion, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. He says that again. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And he goes on to give kind of the climax, the clinching voice, verse, the reasons why they should be motivated to give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. What Paul is doing, first and foremost, is reminding them of the gospel. Reminding them that Jesus is the ultimate picture of generous giving. John 3 says that God so loved the world that he gave. That Jesus, God with skin on, was willing to leave his riches in heavenly dwelling and become a child. Not just any child, but a child born into poverty. A child born to very young parents who couldn't afford the temple sacrifice but had to give doves because that was what was in place for those who couldn't afford a spotless lamb. We see that Jesus lived a perfect life, what you and I were unable to do, that he experienced rejection and hardship and difficulty says that he had no place to call home as he grew in his adult life. He lived a life of poverty, but one with purpose, so that he could be the perfect substitute for you and I to experience 
the riches of his grace. Some acronyms at times are helpful in understanding. There's one of grace that maybe you've heard. God's riches at Christ's expense. That is the only true motivation for generosity. It's because we worship and recognize that God first gave to us. He is the picture, our identity of why we strive to give what we have first received. We see in 2 Corinthians verse 5, it says, talking about those in the Macedonian churches, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. I love that verse. That first and foremost, giving was an act of worship. That they gave themselves fully to the Lord. Then through, it seems, prayerful consideration to discern the will of God also to us. That they knew giving was an act of worship. It was something that must be cultivated in our relationship with God. That as we seek to understand more of him, our desire is that hopefully you and I grow in our generosity. Author J.D. Greer says, For generosity to be found in me, it must be formed in me first. Christians who worship God, not money, prefer to live sufficiently and give extravagantly rather than vice versa. It wasn't just their money. It was their mission. It wasn't their bank account. It was their calendar. It wasn't their donation. It was their expression of a heart. It wasn't words. It was also their actions. You and I may experience lots of different reasons to give. Right? Maybe it's uh, a close relationship. Maybe it's, at times, negative aspects of social status or acknowledgement or awareness. Other times, maybe it's compulsion. But we see that our giving is, first and foremost, an act of worship, a response to what God had first given us. If you think of it like this, in our culture, it would be frowned upon, looked down upon, if uh, we chose a spouse based upon the wealth that they had, right? Uh, I think we would generally hold it of, that's not like a kosher thing in our society. God is not concerned first and foremost with your money. He wants your heart. And we see how interlinked they are. That our money is an act of worship. Our giving is a response to what he first gave to us. Paul goes in in verse 8 and says, I'm not commanding you. Right? He's giving them instructions, advice, considerations, but knowing it must go through the filter of the Holy Spirit's leading. He says, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. You see, the sincerity of our love is seen in our willingness to give. I think sometimes it can be hard to think through our faith, right? How am I doing at loving God? Am I loving God more and more? For me, when I think through our finances, when I think through my finances, 
It is a black and white litmus test to understand my passions and my priorities. Facts don't lie, right? That I can look inward and see what I value, what I prioritize. Right? We see the sincerity of our love for others expressed in our willingness to give, to meet other needs. First John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but doesn't have pity, compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Joel introed the conversation last week and talked about in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, there's this invisible cord from my heart to my wallet that shows my faith. That it can be a true litmus test of how I'm doing at loving others. Our money is an indicator of what we value. If we put our treasure in the stock market, our heart will follow. If we put our treasure in the next best, latest gadget, our heart will follow. That is the reality. It is a clear indicator of the sincerity of our love. Paul goes on to say that he was amazed by their generosity. He says they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, not under compulsion. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I wonder if it may have gone something like this, that in their preaching, in their celebration, Paul let them know of the hardships that those were experiencing in Jerusalem. I don't see that he pushed for this large offering, but it says they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. That generosity, first and foremost, recognizes and sacrifices short-term gains for long-term investments. One of uh, my favorite board games is Monopoly. Uh, when I was young, I used to love to play against my parents and my brother, and that translated to, for many years, even after college, I had an annual once-a-year Monopoly night with some fraternity brothers. And uh, probably most or many of you have played, but the goal is to accrue as much possession that you can, you know, uh, boardwalk and park place, and try to bankrupt your fellow competitor, right? The reality is that I think many of us live life like a game of Monopoly. There's an author by the name of John Orberg. He's my favorite author. He says... When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. Have you ever thought of how we can live our life so short-sighted without the reality of the long-term opportunity that you and I have to invest in? That is what the Macedonian churches recognize. They realize that sacrificing for a short time meant that they could enjoy something for all eternity in service to the lord's people we'd play the game of monopoly a lot different if it could translate into 
U.S. dollars here and now, right? And that's the perspective, the mindset that God invites us into, to be able to invest our lives in things that will outlast us, in gospel-centered organizations, movements, in things that will translate to value in eternity. Joel mentioned this verse last week, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but rather treasures in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal. J.D. Greer had mentioned it's like uh, being in uh, a war of uh, the Confederates and having all this Confederate money at the end of the Civil War. It is of no good and no purpose. But sometimes we can live our life seeking to accrue rather than invest with short-term mindset rather than a long-term plan or investment. I find it interesting the joy that they experienced in their current circumstance, in their situation. In 2 Corinthians verse 2, it says, In the midst, they were experiencing a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. If I were developing a math equation for generosity, I'm not sure this would be the first thing that comes to mind. Extreme poverty plus an abundance of joy wells up in rich generosity. Right? What it leads me to believe is regardless of our circumstances, with an abundance of joy, we can live a life of generosity. Joel's going to unpack this idea more as we look at 2 Corinthians 9 next week. But an abundance of thankfulness and joy leads to a wealth of generosity. And so Paul is directing their attention to the churches in Macedonia. And he's having them look at their example as inspiration, motivation for how they should perceive their finances. And what he goes on to do, starting in verse 10, is to give them some advice, some suggestions related to their own situation. He goes on to say, and here's my judgment about what is best for you. Last year, you were first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. This reality kind of reminds me of a story we find in the Gospels in Mark 12. We see Jesus observing in the temple an offering. And there was a poor widow who came. And she dropped what the equivalent may be a few cents, a cent or two. And Jesus looked at that woman and said, she is the one that's generous. She gave out of her poverty, out of her sacrifice. Others who were there were rich and with abundance, and they only gave a small portion. God is always concerned about the proportional aspect of our gifts, not just the portion. He goes on in verse 13 to say, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need 
so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I think what Paul is doing here is giving him a kingdom economics lesson. And he's doing it by quoting from a previous example in the Old Testament, Exodus 16. And it's one that I initially and wouldn't think to connect it with our giving or finances. It's the story of God providing manna in the wilderness. So God had delivered Egypt from slavery and bondage and sent them kind of on a journey to the promised land. And admits there, they were in need of food, you know, not good access to uh, a kitchen while they had tents. And so every night, God would provide manna, this kind of sweet bread. And the idea was those who uh, were able to physically They were encouraged to gather and even gather as much as they could and bring back. And if they had excess, they were encouraged to share that with others. Because if they kept the excess for themselves, it would rot overnight and it would stink. And so every morning they would go gather what they needed if they were able to gather others and share out of their abundancy. The truth, the reality that we see related to kingdom economics is God gives excess to some so that they can share with those that have less. As we sit here this morning, the humble reality is that you and I are in the top one, maybe two percent of the entire world. Right? We don't live in that reality out of guilt, but rather out of a responsibility that we have been given excess in order to share with others who are in need. I think as we try to understand this kind of perspective and maybe ask practical questions of, okay, I recognize that I may have excess. What does it look like? How do I navigate what I should give? How do I prayerfully think through? It reminds me, I think, of a picture of a trampoline. I want to explain this. So I had the opportunity to build our trampoline. It uh, went uh, relatively well. I was was very happy with it. My kids were outside using it yesterday. But in order for the trampoline to work effectively, it needs the right tension once the frame is built on each of the springs. So they have this special tool because you can't do it by hand in order to connect the one edge of the net to the frame. And I believe that is the tension that we are invited to live in related to our finances. Joel mentioned last week the idea that God owns it all, that our money, my money, is not mine. I believe that that is the framework of our trampoline, that we move from this ownership principle to a stewardship understanding about our finances, right? We probably all had experiences similar to this. I remember we were gifted um, a condo uh, about seven years ago for a week in uh, Florida. And uh, my parents came along. We had two young kids at the time. My daughter was three. My son was one. And uh, I remember 
opening the door to that condo and looking straight ahead to see bright white carpet. Now, I don't know who thought of this, but the white carpet wasn't just in the living areas. It was also in the kitchen. I know where the table was. And so all week, I still feel tense thinking about it, right? We had a chair. We literally put my son in the corner of the tile and would follow the kids around all week so that they didn't ruin the carpet, right? We clearly lived that week knowing we didn't own this condo, knowing that we wanted to return it in good condition to those that had given the gift for us. That is the truth of how you and I should think about our money, that God gives it to us in order to bless us, to provide for us, so that we can share with others. Ultimately, it's his. That's the frame and the understanding of how we should think about our money. But within that is the reality, in order to have a successful net, you must have springs in tension with each other. And the first is something that we don't always acknowledge. And we see this in 1 Timothy 6. It says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but rather put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. Why? For our enjoyment. That God provides for our enjoyment. Now, I don't know the full extent and application of this, but I know that we shouldn't always live with guilt for enjoying some splurges, okay? I think of maybe going to a nice restaurant, enjoying that steak that we want, or occasionally having a vacation, right? That God gives us everything for our enjoyment. It's something that maybe we don't always acknowledge, that around this conversation of money can often be one of guilt and one of compulsion. But there seems to be freedom and enjoyment, right? Because this doesn't necessarily lead to an indulgent lifestyle. It doesn't lead to where we're always focused on increasing our standard of giving, our standard of living, and not considering our standard of giving, right? Because the other end of the spring that we need to be very careful and hold intention and probably just being an American very aware of, is that riches can harm us. Jesus said in Luke 12, he says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, I was uh, the quintessential saver when I was young. I always knew exactly how much money I had in the bank. I would kind of twist situations so that my parents would provide and I wouldn't have to use some of my money. Um, I went into uh, finances in undergrad. I studied personal financial planning, right? And uh, I'm even still to this day pretty frugal when it comes to choices. You know what's fascinating to me is that in all the conversations I've had about money, and I have them pretty often because I love talking about money. Like I'm very comfortable to talk I can never remember someone considering my perspective or view on money to be a vice and not a virtue. How often, maybe under the guise of wise planning, maybe 
we can lead to greed, right? I know someone can't tell that for me. I can't tell that for you. But I've never been questioned personally about some of my perspective and view on money. How subtle greed can be. It can be a silent, dangerous killer that is totally acceptable in our culture. I think it translates like this, that many of our once luxuries become necessities. I remember my first car. I bought it for $300 from my Aunt Betty. Here's a picture, Mazda 323. Now, this picture is actually better than my first vehicle because mine did not have a right side rear view mirror. Now, I'm surprised that was legal, but it was back then. And um, at, it was a four-speed, so I had to learn stick shift. And uh, once I got it in the fourth gear, it would shake at 50 miles an hour, right? But I loved that first car. When I was 16, if you asked me what I wanted as in a vehicle, was four doors and air conditioning. How quickly what we once view as luxuries can become necessities. Right, And things that maybe we were comfortable with at one time can drastically get broader and bigger. The reality is that we live in a culture that seeks to have more. The average household, they spend 101% of their income. The average household has eight credit cards. I love credit card reward points. I'm, I probably make that go up. But the reality is, they can be a great danger to many of us. The average adult has $7,000 of credit card debt. 90% of adults do not have a budget. 30% have zero savings. Money is the number one cause of divorce. You see Ecclesiastes 5.10 that says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. There's a Roman proverb that says, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. How quickly we can fall into the trap of riches that seek to harm us. But the perspective, the reality is that we get to stop, evaluate, and think. Because what we know is that peace is a fruit of the Spirit, not a byproduct of accumulated wealth. Andy Stanley said that. Joel looked at this last week. It said that the God math, godliness with contentment that we see in 1 Timothy 6, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, will we be content in that? And so we're invited to live in this tension, right? There isn't always very easy answers, black and white understanding, but it is this tension of being in step with God's spirit. But I think the reality is that God gives us a protection against riches that can harm us, against a lifestyle of greed. We see indication of this in First Timothy. He says, command those who are rich not to be arrogant, but rather put their hope in wealth, not put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but rather put their hope in God. You see, 
Giving is driven by faith and is our protection against greed. The reality, all of us are in different circumstances. For many of us, we may have a temptation to easily fret over our finances, to worry about God's provision. But giving is an opportunity of protection against that. It's a trust in understanding that God is the one who provides. That I can live out a response of what he's first given to me. I think this kingdom economics example is that we should all begin with a plan to give. The book of Proverbs says that it's wise for you and I to save. Right, That many times, begin with a plan to give, develop a plan to save, and plan to live with what is left over. That it is our first response. That giving is our protection of greed. That it is driven by faith. Hopefully you and I don't live a life that just settles for reaching some point, but we reach to increase our generosity. We reach to give more of what God has first given to us. I think the reality for all of us is that if we follow Jesus, if we claim that Jesus is everything that we need, that I am free to give everything that I have. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Jesus lived a life that was sacrificial. Jesus lived a life with an eye on eternity, not for comfort. That he experienced the pain and trial of life knowing that he was bringing about reconciliation with fallen humanity. We look to him as our generous giver. We look to him for the invitation that he allows us to be a part of what he's doing here and now. And that is the goal and the mission of saving lives, of proclaiming his good news, that our giving allows us to partner with what he does. God doesn't need us. He wants our heart. He wants our relationship. He wants our priority. He wants to be worshipped for who he is. A God who's gracious, a God who's loving, a God who's generous. May we live in response to the generosity that he first showed us. Father, that's our heart, our prayer, our desire. Lord, that once we stop and recognize that in our spiritual poverty... We could do nothing in order to earn, to gain permanent access with a perfect and holy God. But Lord, you offered us your riches on our behalf at your expense. And Lord, it is that reality that shapes and transforms our lives. That gives us freedom that we don't need to walk around seeking to receive something from others so that we can find peace and joy and satisfaction and purpose, but rather we have something to offer, that we can live our lives with one eye on eternity and one eye on opportunity. Lord, that's our hope, that's our desire. I pray that you would move us in a way to stop, reflect, evaluate, 
and be motivated to give in response to what you first gave us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.